Man, it's good to see you today. If you're a guest, we're glad you're here. I'm David. I'm the pastor. You're always welcome uh, to be a part of the things we have going on here at First Baptist Church. In uh, the spring of 1984, I was called to be the youth minister at the First Baptist Church in Edinburgh, Texas. Edinburgh's way down in South Texas. It's on the very tip down there across the border from Reynosa, Mexico. And uh, at that time, I was uh, going to seminary at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Now, Southwestern is out of Fort Worth, but I didn't go to Fort Worth. At that time, they had a program where the professors would fly into San Antonio on Monday. And so that's how I went. I was one of the few guys that was able to get all of my master's that way. And so when I went to Edinburgh, I still had to go to San Antonio. So uh, they, they came on Mondays. Sunday night after church, after everything was done, my pastor never let me off early. He didn't say, he got a four-hour drive, I get that. He, I love the old man, he's a tough old man, he, he taught me a lot. Our staff has it easy compared to me when I was a young minister. I'm telling you that right now. I'm a piece of, I'm, I'm a softie, Joe, compared to guys. You guys, you got to quit complaining, I'm an easygoing guy. So I would leave home about 8 o'clock at night, and that's a four-hour drive to San Antonio, the highway back then, they didn't have highway for most of the way, it's 55, you know, so you got to try to stay in that. It's dark, and I said goodbye to Debbie. Four hours later, I'd be in San Antonio, I'd stay with my mama, and I'd call Debbie and say I got here safely. And then the next day, I'd go to school. I'd leave about 7, 30, 8 o'clock at night. I would stop at a pay phone. I would call my wife, Collect, tell her I'm on the way. She didn't hear from me again until I got home. So she had no idea what was going on. If I got a flat, if I had a problem, there was no way to get a hold of her. Now, if you were born after 1990 or certainly 1995, you can't understand that. You don't know what a pay phone is. You probably never called Collect, have you? You probably don't even know how to get a hold of an operator. It's zero, by the way. You don't know those things. That's okay. It's great. Now, you know, now when I'm traveling, I can call my wife all the time. She can call me all she wants. We can keep in communication. Back then, you couldn't do it. Some of you get that. You understand that. For some of you, you don't. And it depends on the context of the world in which you grow up in. If you grew up back then, in that context, you get that. Context and culture of where you are in life is critical to your understanding of things. And I say that because Jesus came into the world in a particular context, in a particular culture. And sometimes we look back from the 21st century, and we know all that stuff was a long time ago, but we don't quite get the context in which he came. So we're in a series entitled The Life and Times of Jesus. And in this series, we're in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark throughout the month of September. We're looking at Jesus, and we're trying to understand some things through the context and the culture of which he came. And this is the thing in the series that I want you to get throughout this month. It's this. Society and culture, including Judaism, had never experienced anyone like Jesus. Who he was and what he did challenged their world. And that is just as true today as it was back then. Who was Jesus and how does he impact my life? Now, when Jesus came into the world, he crashed the party. I mean, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish religious leaders, they had this system in place. You know, it was all to their benefit. And Jesus just came and crashed it. And he was an obstacle that religious leaders could never get around. We saw last week the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Today we're going to come uh, in Mark chapter 1. I'll reread verse 9, but we're going to come in verses uh, 9 through 13 and look at in those days. What was like in those days when Jesus came? So here's, here's what it says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. 
And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately the spirit impelled or forced him to go into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beast, and the angels were ministering to him. So here's the thing that I want you to see today. We can trust Jesus because he has an authenticity no other person and no religion can legitimately claim. No person, no religion can can claim an authenticity in a legitimate way like Jesus can. In those days, that's where this passage begins. Now, remember when I I talked about uh, last week, that if you were to look in the Old Testament, if you were to look back then, the the religion or, or the faith, I should say, that the Jews, the relationship they had with God was based on a covenant. They had a covenant agreement with God. In fact, God still works with us through a covenant, through a, a connection that's a relationship. And in that covenant, God chose the Jewish people, and he said, you're gonna, I'm going to bless the world through you. You're not exclusively mine. I'm choosing you, but you're going to go out, and you're going to help people come to me. That was a responsibility. And he said, I'm going to give you ten commandments. And those ten commandments are to guide you through life. They're, they're not in order that you may be my people. You are my people. But since you're my people, this is how you live. And when you come into the New Testament, you see something that looks completely different to that. You you see things that you don't find in the Old Testament. You see people worshiping in synagogues. That's not in the Old Testament. You see people people that are Pharisees and Sadducees. You see religious leaders like the Herodians. You see people you never see in the Old Testament. In fact, what you see is really a system. What had been a covenant relationship became a religious system. The Pharisees and the scribes and all of them took Ten Commandments... And they turned them into 613 laws and rules and regulations. And in doing so, they took the concept of the Messiah, which is found in the Old Testament, as one who God promises who will come and bring salvation to the world. They took the concept of the Messiah and they turned it into a political leader who was going to come and lead an army to defeat the Romans and establish the Jews in their self-righteousness to Pharisees and others who would be righteous in God's eyes because of their works would be in the lead of that kingdom. That's what existed. Mark begins his gospel, that we saw last week, saying, in the beginning. This is the beginning of the gospel. He said, this is the beginning. This is something new. He is breaking from the past. He is not going back to the Jewish system. He's not looking at the Pharisees. He's saying, this is the beginning. This is something completely new. And it's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This person, Jesus, who is the Messiah, who also happens to be the Son of God. He is human, he is God, he is all those things. And he tells us, he talks about John the Baptist in the the next eight verses. But in verse 9, we see in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, in those days, in the time where John was doing his ministry, Jesus came from Nazareth. Now, now, Nazareth is is a a know-nothing little town with nobody in it, really. It's just, it wasn't ever mentioned in the Old Testament, it wasn't mentioned in Jewish life. You know, I, if you could pick a community in our area that where, where it's just nothing, that's, that would be it. I won't pick it because some of you may come from that. I don't want to insult you today. And, and so, you know, that's kind of how it was. And, and in fact, in John's gospel, chapter 1, Nathaniel said, can anything good ever come from Nazareth? And that's how people looked at it. And so we see that Jesus came, and, and he came from there, and we need to understand something about Jesus. At the time, he was just a Jewish carpenter. I mean, when he came into this world, you know, we, we know from the birth account that he was conceived of by the Holy Spirit, Mary. But, but Mary, you know, was betrothed. She was engaged to uh, Joseph. Joseph, when he married uh, Mary, took Jesus legally as his son. And so he grew up as a carpenter because that's what Joseph was. They didn't make much money. 
But that's the family business. Now, in that time, we know that Jesus would do what other kids his age would do. He would go, especially boys, he would go to the synagogue and learn everything. In fact, the only thing we know about his childhood comes from the Gospel of Luke. When he was 12 years old, he went to the temple. And they were amazed at how much he knew about the law. In fact, Jesus understood the law. He understood the Old Testament. He understood the religious system. They taught him the religious system. He knew it. We wonder sometimes, how much did Jesus know about who he was? And and it's hard for us to say. We can't know for sure. but, But when Jesus became into this world as flesh, when he became human... He let, chose to lay aside a lot of the privileges he had as God. He was always God. In fact, Paul in, in Philippians chapter 2 says he emptied himself. In other words, he took his humanity, and in taking that humanity, he laid aside some of the rights and privileges he had as God. He, he was always God. He always had power. He always had knowledge, but he chose not to use it in becoming human. In other words, put it this way. Jesus, as, as, because he was God, always had the ability, but he didn't always have the capability. In other words, he didn't, he didn't live his life showing his divinity. He was a carpenter, and he was a humble one at that. He was taking care of his family, his mom, and his, rest, his brothers and sisters, the rest of the family. And, and, he, and he had this crazy cousin named John. Everybody has that cousin. That's just different, man. You may be it. You may not think you're it. Just look around. You could be the crazy cousin. And I told you last week, you know, he wore you know, a coat full of camel's hair, and he had a belt, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And by the way, if you still eat locusts and wild honey, you're not being biblical. You're just being crazy. And that was him. And so I don't know how much Jesus knew about John. We don't know. People speculate. It doesn't matter. But he was out there, and he was baptizing people. And so Jesus decided to go and see what it was all about. So he went out to the wilderness with the thousands, and he heard John's message. Now, Jesus didn't need to repent. He had never sinned, but he loved God. I mean, he, he loved the Father. And so he said, I'm going to go be baptized with everybody else to show that I love the Father. And, and Jesus, you ever see the pictures of John, you know, of, of John baptizing Jesus in the Jordan? Probably maybe in the back of the Bible you have, you have a picture, you know. And, and it's always, nobody's there but Jesus and John. Man, that's not, everybody was there. And in fact, Jesus had to stand in line. You think Jesus cut in the front of the line? No, nah, I mean, Jesus, he'd go to the back of the line. And when everybody stood, Jesus came up, and John saw him. And in the Gospel of John, it says this. The Baptist looked at him and said, Behold, he's the Lamb of God. He's the one who will take away the sins of the world. Matthew tells us that he looked at Jesus and said, I'm not going to baptize you. You need to baptize me. And Jesus said, No, no, no. You baptize me. There's some things about his baptism that's important to us, and we should realize that he was baptized. He was identifying with the rest of humanity and his people. He didn't need to be baptized. Not according to what John was teaching. But he wanted to because he loved God. Because he loved the Father. He goes, I'm going to be baptized with the rest of the people. And in doing so, he also established a certain amount of credibility to John's ministry. They didn't know that back then. But we look today and say when he submitted to the baptism of John, he was giving credit. He was looking at John's ministry and saying, this is the real thing. And then the third thing you have to realize is this was the start of his ministry. He was 30 years old. He was not a carpenter anymore. He didn't go back to being a carpenter in Nazareth. From this point on, he is heading straight to the cross. And when he was being baptized, it says, when he came up, he went into the water, and he came back up. He was immersed. I don't know how it can be any clearer than that. He wasn't sprinkled. It was not John the sprinkler. John the Baptist. John putting you in, pulling you back out. And so he went in, came back out, and it says the heavens opened. The word for open is the word that we get schism from. It just shattered open. And then a dove came. The Holy Spirit came in the form of a dove. You know, there's lots of speculation of what that means. 
Maybe it means peace. It really doesn't matter for us. The Holy Spirit came, it says, upon Jesus. Literally, the word that is translated upon is a little Greek word. It's a preposition. All prepositions in Greek point either to movement or location. You're under something, above something, by something, in something. This one points to into. It's movement from outside to inside. Normally, it's translated into or in. And the idea is the dove may have rested on Jesus' shoulder, but the Holy Spirit came not upon him, but into him. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus didn't already have the Holy Spirit. This is a symbolic way of showing us this is the beginning. In fact, what you have now, look at it this way. If Jesus always had the power to do all the things that God could do, the Holy Spirit was the key that unlocked that power. I mean, all of a sudden, because Jesus now, after this, when you see Jesus, man, he's doing miracles all over the place. It's an amazing thing. And so the Holy Spirit comes upon him. That, by the way, fulfills the prophecy made in Isaiah 11.1. That my spirit will come upon you. The spirit, the power came upon him. And then God spoke. I don't know who all heard him. Maybe it was just Jesus. Maybe it was Jesus and John. I don't know. It doesn't matter. We didn't hear him, that's for sure. But he spoke, and this is what he did. He said, you are my beloved son, and in you I am well pleased. Now, he took two Old Testament scriptures, and he combined them together. He took Psalm 2, verse 7. Psalm 2, verse 7 is a psalm that deals with David becoming king, and it's the anointing of the king, God accepting the anointing of the king. So when he says, you're my beloved son, he is claiming Psalm 2 for Jesus. He is saying, you're the king. This, this is the one coming from the Davidic line. This is the Messiah that's to come. He's the king. He's not the physical king. He is the eternal king. And then in, in quoting Isaiah 42.1, Isaiah 42 is one of the passages that deals with the suffering servant. In Isaiah, there's several of those that point to a Messiah. Now, the Jewish leaders would completely corrupt their understanding, but, but the Lord doesn't do that. And in, in, in Psalm 42, he says, You and you alone... Am I well pleased? It's emphatic. He's the one I'm pleased with. And Psalm 42, I mean, excuse me, Isaiah 42 talks about Jesus, or talks about the suffering servant who's going to die for his people. He says, not only are you the king, but you're the one who's going to die for the people. I mean, this is the beginning. This is it. And then we're told that when he came up out of it, and this is a picture, by the way, of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There are people who say, well, the Bible doesn't teach the Trinity. Of course the Bible teaches the Trinity. Of course the New Testament teaches it right here. It doesn't use the word Trinity. We came up with that term. It's all right. It's there. And it says immediately the Holy Spirit drove him, compelled him into the wilderness. The word for drove or compelled, impelled, means to throw out. It comes from a Greek word, balo, to throw out. Throw out. He threw him into the wilderness. And that's where he went. Now, in Scripture, the concept of wilderness can be important. I mean, if Moses was in the wilderness for 40 years by himself, you know, getting married. Then he took the people through the wilderness for 40 years. You know, Elijah spent 40 days in the wilderness. The wilderness is important. And for us, it doesn't really matter, but it's kind of an important thing. He was in the wilderness. What was going on in the wilderness? Well, it was in the wilderness for 40 days that God would begin to reveal to Jesus what it means to be the Messiah. He's saying, this is what's being laid out for you. Because after the wilderness experience, Jesus is just going at it. But also in the wilderness, he was being tempted by Satan, the adversary, that entire time. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, it gives us the three major temptations he faced towards the end of that time. And in fact, a couple of weeks ago in Grow, on Wednesday nights, our Bible study, I talked about that. And what the temptation was was simply this. As God the Father reveals to Jesus 
of what it means to be Messiah, Satan is tempting him to take a shortcut and not do it God's way. And by the way, the temptation Jesus experienced was always fierce. We get tempted. The word tempted means to prove or test. It can be, it's a neutral word. You can test positive, you test negative. Jesus obviously tested positive. But it's the idea of revealing who you really are. And see, when we get tempted, we don't really experience the greatness of temptation because we give in to so easily. I mean, I know, I mean I, in my office, I got a jar of M&Ms, man. And those M&Ms are supposed to be for some of the staff kids to come by. And every morning, every day, I go into my office and say, you know what, Lord? I need to watch what I'm eating. I'm not going to have those M&Ms. And every day, I walk past those M&Ms, and I say, the heck with this. I'm having M&Ms, man. <laughs> and I eat them. I, I'm tempted. It doesn't last long because when it comes to M&Ms, man, I'm weak. And so the thing is, we do that. We get tempted and say, oh, our temptation is so great. Once we give in, there's no more temptation. We don't give it in. Jesus never gave in, never gave in. The temptation was always there. And when he went through that afterwards, you know, it was time for everything to start. The, the angels came to minister to him, and Jesus began doing the things that Jesus did. And what he did is he crashed the party that the Pharisees and religious leaders had created for themselves. I mean, they had basically designed their own religion. That's what they had done. They had taken the Ten Commandments of God, and they designed their own religion. It was four years ago, I think this month, that I preached a message about the designer Jesus, how people take stuff from Jesus and they design their own version of Jesus. It happens all the time. In fact, I could take you to churches all over this town. We could walk in, and, and, and most of them, well, a lot of them at least, would be preaching something that they just kind of make up their own Jesus. Some would be preaching, they would be preaching and saying, you know what, uh, Jesus, Jesus wants you to be wealthy, and he wants you to prosper. And if you don't prosper, you lack faith. Well, Jesus never taught that. You can read all the Gospels, all four. You can read the red parts. Whether Jesus speaking, it ain't in there. They just made that up. They designed that. Some designed and say, you know, you need to be baptized to be saved. Jesus didn't teach that. But you need to be baptized to be saved, and we want babies to be saved, so we're just going to sprinkle them with water. And now they're saved. Jesus doesn't teach that. They, just, they made that up. Some, some will say, you know what, the most important part of the gospel is, is we've got to look at people and, and, and there's a lack of justice and we're going to do things to change the tide and we're going to be a church that preaches social justice. Now, and I get all that, but Jesus never did that. In fact, here's an astonishing thing. Jesus never dealt with social justice at all. And trust me, it was less ju- there was less justice then than there is today. He never touched the subject. They just, they just create their own Jesus. That's exactly what the Pharisees did with religion. Mark presents Jesus as someone who is unique, someone who is qualified to do what religion cannot. Jesus, you see, is authentic. When you design your own religion, that's not authentic. And Jesus didn't come to start a religion. He came to bring people to God through him. And so what you see so much of in the Bible is you see this battle between Jesus and religious leaders going on and on and on. In Mark chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, you see this. Now, there was a commandment about the Sabbath. Honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. What God wanted was you to take one day off in the week and rest from work and then worship him that day. That's, that's just all it is. There's nothing more complicated to it. And, and the religious leaders took that and they created 49 different rules you had to follow on the Sabbath. For instance, you could not pick out a gray hair on the Sabbath. That would be considered harvesting. Now, some of you done already broke that rule about 25, 30 times today, haven't you? You can there's, there's gray hair. I ain't going to church with gray hair. Some of you obviously don't care if you gray hair. Some of you don't care if you have any hair, you know. 
But that, that's how silly it's gotten. And Jesus and the Pharisees had already had the squabble about the, about the Sabbath. And this happens in Mark chapter 3. And here it says, He entered again into a synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was just withered. And they, that is the religious leaders, were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Think about that. They wanted to see if Jesus would actually heal someone on the Sabbath because that was breaking their rules. So they might, what, accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. Could you imagine being in church like this and me saying, hey, you, you're with the problem. We all want to see your problem. You get up here and come to the front of the stage so we can take a look at your problem. That's what he did. He said, get up and come forward. And then he said to the religious leaders, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Now, here's, here was the mindset. If you had the power to do good and you didn't, then you did harm. You did evil. If you could do good and didn't do good, you did evil. So Jesus has the power to heal this man. If he doesn't heal him, then in essence he's doing evil. Which is it right? Harm. To do harm or to do good. To save or kill. They kept silent because they couldn't answer that question without causing trouble for themselves. Notice what it says in verse 5. He looked around at them with anger. You know, Jesus got angry from time to time. It's a different kind of anger than you and I. In fact, Jesus would get angry. We know at one point he got angry and he took a whip. And he took a whip and drove religious leaders out of the area of the temple. So next time you get angry, if you want to be angry like Jesus, just grab a whip. (laughs) The hearts were hard. Look at that. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out and he healed his hand. His hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out immediately and they began conspiring with the other religious leaders, the Herodians, so they might do what? Kill him. Think about it. Jesus healed the man. And he broke their law, and they wanted to kill him. That's the religious system they had in place. Authenticity matters so much. Debbie and I have a book. It's really a sketchbook of drawings. uh, And in it, it is a numbered edition. And we have a letter, a certificate of authenticity that, that claims that this book is real, in case we ever want to sell it. The authenticity matters. And here's the thing we need to realize and see. That the authentic Jesus is someone who has some unique aspects to himself. See, Jesus was fully human and lived a life that was fully human. That's important. No one really ever questions the humanity of Jesus. But sometimes we forget just how fully human he was. I mean, he was tempted to sin, but he never did it. People, you know, don't question the humanity of Jesus, but they, just, they think maybe he has an advantage over us, and he never had an advantage. In fact, he was tempted to such a degree, he was far greater than us, because we always give in to temptation. And we stop it. He never stopped it. He never gave into it. And, 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 and he suffered. And he bled. And he died. He was human just like in every way you and I are human. He lived the human experience except he never sinned. But also we see that in Jesus, God revealed himself and fulfilled his promise to us. I, I tell you quite often that scripture, the Bible, It's God's revelation of himself to us. He reveals himself to us. The Old Testament promises something. The New Testament fulfills it. The ultimate revelation of God is Jesus. If you see Jesus, you see God in the flesh. And we've got to realize that all the power that God possesses, Jesus possessed. He was God. He is God. In uh, Mark chapter 2, Jesus, right, you know, Read chapter 1, there's chapter 2. I hope, by the way, y'all read the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark sometime this month. You need, you need to read the whole thing. It's not going to be long. He was in his house. He was teaching. And these guys just lowered this dude right in front of him. And the guy was just crippled from birth. And Jesus looked at this lame man. And he said, 
Your sins are forgiven. And they were mumbling, what do you mean his sins are forgiven? You can't forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. And by the way, they are correct. Only God can forgive sin. That was a true statement. But Jesus knew their hearts. And so he said, what's easier to do? What's easier to actually say? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Because, you know, if he say, say get up and walk and he doesn't walk, then we've got a problem. No one's going to ever know if his sins are forgiven. It's easier to say that. But he said, this is what I want you to know. I want you to know that the Son of Man, that is me, that I have the power to forgive sin. Remember, only God can forgive sin. So Jesus said, pick up your mat and walk away. And he picked up his mat and walked. Now, here's the thing. Not only does only God have the power to forgive sin, only God has the power to heal a man that was born crippled. And there he is. Jesus is revealed as God. Fully man, fully God, right before us. And with that in mind, understand, Jesus could do what no religion can. Only Jesus can save us from our sin and bring us to God. The Jews had created a system that didn't work. And the system couldn't do the one thing they needed. The system couldn't relieve them of sin and bring them to God. But Jesus could. In that day, people were lost. In that day, religion had abandoned them. Religion provided nothing. The pagans had gods and goddesses. They didn't love them. They despised them. They made sacrifices because they tried to manipulate them. There was no love for their deity. The Jews had taken this love for God and this made this system of rules and regulations. No one could keep it. And these people were lonely and they were hurting and they were lost. In those days, people needed someone. Someone came. Someone who was authentic. That was Jesus. We live in days where we need someone to come as well. We need someone who is real, authentic. See, we still live like they lived back then. We still live. Some of you right now are living with such despair in your life. You're so frustrated. Life has lost all sense of meaning. Some of you, you've gone from one relationship to another relationship, thinking a relationship might somehow make you feel important and it never has worked. Some of you go from alcohol to drugs to another drug. You keep finding some substance that will make your life okay, and it never works. Some of you, financially, you're just busted, you're ruined, and you don't know how to get out of it. You're, some of you have marriages and family life that's a mess, and you are so desperate for someone to help you, and you don't know what to do. Some of you know you're so far from God, and you keep trying to find God, and you can't ever find it. Well, here's the thing. In these days, what you really need is not a religion. What you need is Jesus. Because Jesus can change your life. He can change. That's why he came. We're going to see next week, Jesus came and he preached a message. He says, repent and believe the gospel. Believe in me. A couple weeks, we're going to see him call people to follow me, follow me. And that's what it means to be a true Christian. Really, you're just a follower of Jesus. To be a Christian is not to be caught up in a religion. It's to follow a person who was fully God and fully man and came in this world to do one thing, and that's bring us to God. And some of you today, that's exactly what you need. 
And our invitation in just a minute, when I extend it, what you need to do is you need to quit looking at religions to try to make things better. You need to quit looking at other people and relationships to make things better. You need to quit trying to get substances, money, all that. You need to put all that aside and say, what you need and what I need is Jesus. And you need to take your life and you need to give it to Jesus. Turn away from your sin and trust Jesus. And you can come talk to one of us and say, I need to trust Jesus. Some of you are Christians. You're followers, but you've gotten caught up in a religious system, and you have forgotten what it means to follow Jesus. And maybe today what you need in your life is to put the system aside and get back to following the person, the person who is Christ the Lord, and come and renew that relationship. Some of you pray for people that you know need Christ, but what you keep praying for is that, you know, they'll find a church or they'll find this or that, and you keep forgetting the one thing they really need is just a person. You need to pray that somehow they encounter Jesus because only Jesus will ever change a life. Only Jesus changes a life. Christianity does not change a life. Christianity does not change a culture. Christ changes people. In those days, in those days, people needed Jesus. In these days, people still need Jesus. You need Jesus. So, Father, what do we do? What do we do with our life? What you call us, what you compel us to do, what you bring us to do is very simple. You want us to repent of the sin in our life, to repent of following all the systems, to repent of doing it our own way, and to turn away from that and to turn to the only place we can turn, the only one we can turn, to turn to Jesus who is the Christ. And we can do that because he's authentic, he's real. And we can take our lives and give them to him. So I ask God in the name of Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would trust our life to Jesus. And we would take our life and give them to him this very moment. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you rise? You may come. We'll be at the front.